This is Christopher Purdy. My guest for this conversation is Robert Mirapol, who is the author of An Execution in the Family, One Son's Journey. He is also the founder and executive director of the Rosenberg Fund for Children, which, while it's based in Massachusetts, certainly has an international reach. Welcome, Robert Mirapol. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. You are the younger son of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, who were executed by the federal government in 1953, charged with being atomic spies. I believe the actual charge was conspiracy to commit espionage. And your recent book, An Execution in the Family, my impression was it was not really uh, going over the actual case. It was your life as it pertained to the case. That's right. I mean, I think that uh, my biggest challenge in writing the book was to tell my story uh, that everyone would presume, oh, yes, this is the son talking about the Rosenberg case again, um, and that this was, to some degree, old news. Uh, But the fact of the matter is that uh, I was six years old when my parents were executed, and, and I'm now almost 60. So there's there's a lot that's gone on in between. And also, I the story I really wanted to tell uh, was, you know, how I overcame a, a horrendous childhood to make something good come out of it. Uh, and that may seem like almost an impossible task. I think it's not as impossible as it might seem. That is, making something good come out of this horrendous childhood experience. Uh, But that's the story I wanted to tell, and it seemed to me a story that was worthwhile. So that was my challenge. Let me let people know that the Rosenberg Fund for Children, which you established in 1990, has since then given more than $2.5 million in grants to the children of, shall we say, political activists or political prisoners or people who are suffering for their beliefs, whatever those beliefs are. Is that fair? Yeah, we use the word progressive activists because that's sort of the broadest sense. Uh, We have four uh, guiding principles. All people have equal worth. People are more important than profit. Society must function within ecologically sustainable limits, and world peace is a necessity. And if you're an activist uh, working on one or more of those kind of goals or goals that are similar to them, and you get in trouble, you could end up in prison, you could lose your job, you could be attacked in one way or another, you could even be killed, uh, then your children become eligible for support from us and the kind of support we give are we don't do food clothing and shelter that's that's too overwhelming uh instead we do things like uh we just talk about educational and emotional needs and and what we're talking about there uh we could give uh summer uh grant for summer camp or for therapy or for cultural classes uh the, that sort of thing and we gave away about $400,000 last year. And actually, the information you, you read is accurate, except that since we've given away another uh, half million dollars in the last, uh, I guess, since that press release was so it's more than three up, million it's now. now more than $3 million Terrific. total grants. And this is the legacy of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg in your well, view. Well, I mean, that's the... That's the good uh, yeah. that came out of of my childhood, and and it, it took me until I was forty three years old to to figure out how to get there. And there were many twists and turns, some of them not so good. 
And that's really the story I tell. Your brother isn't here, so I can't ask him. But let me ask you, did you live in a state of rage for many years over what happened? Well, you know, children are extremely resilient. Uh, um, I had an angry core about this, uh, but I suppressed it pretty well. And I, I must say that once I was adopted by Abel and Ann Mirapol, my name was changed. We dropped from public sight. How old um, were you then? Just let me interrupt. I was really seven. So your brother was 10, maybe? My brother was 10, 11. Okay. Uh, it was a more more difficult for him because he lived through more of his childhood in within this kind of spotlight. Uh, and he, he, um, he understood what was going on more. Uh, but I sort of went beneath the radar as much as I could. And uh, once we were adopted we and dropped from public sight, our lives became much more ordinary and sheltered, and, and that was essential, and it helped me to heal and to... Not that the core of anger was gone, but that it wasn't on the surface, uh, though it would bubble up on occasion and, and cause me certain problems, and, and it wasn't until... Uh, I founded the Rosenberg Fund for Children in 1990 that uh, I really got beyond that. I don't want to say I forgave. I, I don't want to say that, you know, uh, that I, uh, all the people who were involved in my parents' execution, which, which I consider a judicial murder, um, uh, were, were uh, you know, were, I had forgiven them and understood them and all that sort of thing. Uh, but I'd gone to the, gotten beyond that. It was no longer essential to uh, have revenge upon them. It was more important to me that I'd done something positive. Once I'd figured out a positive outlet for that rage and anger, uh, I could truly put it behind me. You uh, were three years old when your parents were arrested in 1950, and you write in your book that you really have very few memories of living with them as a family. Your brother does, but you, you were a baby. You really that's, don't. That's correct. What I have are, is a vague sense of uh, a warm and loving family. And, you know, to some degree, I, I can't tell you whether this is a myth I've created uh, based, you know, the kind of golden era before everything got bad, uh, because I really don't know. Uh, I But I bounced back pretty well once I was adopted, once I dropped from public sight. And I think that, well, it's at least evidence, not proof positive, but at least evidence that I must have had a pretty strong foundation in those first three years before my parents' arrest. But you do write that your memories of them are during maybe a dozen visits until uh, they were died in uh, on death row. You were ta- that, you and your brother as little kids were taken to death row to see them. That's right. We went to Sing Sing Prison, a New York State uh, prison, even though my parents were convicted of under a federal charge. In those days, uh, the federal government had no execution chambers, uh, which is unfortunately no longer the case. Um, shows that we've taken a big step backwards in that way. So they were housed in a New York State prison, uh, and we visited them at least a dozen times uh, during that period. And, and uh, 
you know, I, I remember the prison as being cold and gray. I remember being very pleased to visit my parents, and it was very important, and I'm glad that I did. And they acted in a very normal and calm manner. Our, our prison visits were not, you know, uh, histrionic, crying, screaming affairs, uh, though my brother did have an outburst during the last visit. Uh, but that was, uh, you know, that was the only memory I really have of them, and I'm very grateful for that, and I think it's very important uh, for children to be able to visit with and make connections with even incarcerated parents, even if if that's, you know, it's not the ideal situation to be with your parents, clearly. Uh, but uh, And that's one of the reasons, uh, one of the Rosenberg Fund has a number of sort of sub-funds. One of our funds, one of the things we do is we provide transportation and housing for children uh, to visit imprisoned parents. I want to make sure people have your web address, which is rfc.org, the Rosenberg Fund for yes, Children. That's We got in our on the ground floor of the Internet, so we hmm. have a very simple address, easy to find. Yes, and it's a wonderful site. I've been all through it a number of times. You can even access all your newsletters and things. It's everything you want to know about the work. But I do want to go back to asking you, uh-huh. when you visited your parents in prison as a young child, were you able to be in the same room with both of them at the same time? Uh, actually not. Um, there was one visit where that was the case at the very last visit, but all the other visits, um, we would we would visit them with my parents' attorney would be our, our like, shepherd. Mr. He would Block, bring us, right. Manny Block would bring us in. And then first one, then the other. Uh, uh, you know, my mother would come in, and, and then when she would be let out, then my father would come in. So we saw them one at a time. Um, and that was, I think, primarily because they wanted to keep my parents from having any physical contact with each other. So they, but, but could they hug you? Yes. Okay. Yes, we. It was not. You know, again, it shows some of the backsliding. Uh, now, in in maximum security situations, there's glass between yeah. visitors and parents. But we were actually in a room all together. Uh, did you have a sense? You may not have. You were so young, but your brother might have that that the last visit was going to be the last visit. Oh, absolutely. I didn't have a sense. No, I mean, I think in all the visits, uh, my parents made a real strong effort to act like things were normal. And I wanted them to be normal. So uh, they fooled me, and I wanted to be fooled, so it was easy to fool me. Uh, My brother at the last visit uh, was aware that their execution was scheduled for 48 hours later. And, And he was very upset as the visit was over because they didn't make a big deal of it. Uh, they were trying to put on a tough face and, and, and you know, uh, not uh, let on that this terrible thing was about to happen. Uh, and he was having none of it. So he was clearly quite aware. And that's one of the reasons why I think it was more difficult for him. But, Robert, what the toll must have been on your mother and father to act as if everything was fine. My God. Well, I, I believe that, you know, it was a very, very difficult situation. And I, I think that uh, it's one of the things that led me to do what I did is that in that with the fund later on is that um, there from the very beginning, the fact that they had children was used to extort cooperation right. from them. So that it was like this, this constant uh, additional pressure 
there were family pressure, there was government pressure, and they were constantly reminded, if you don't talk, if you don't cooperate, then you will, you know, think about what will happen to your children. And I think it's, it's the death penalty in my parents' case was not designed as punishment. Uh, the government never wanted to execute them. It was used to force them to say what the government wanted them to say, whether it was true or not. Uh, and that's the key thing. Uh, there are a lot of people out there who say, well, your parents could have just confessed and it was all their fault. Uh, I No, confessed to what was the question. Uh, Briefly, and, they were convicted of what, just so for people well, who that's, don't? Well, that's part of the problem, too, and you state, laid it out very, very well in, 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 the, in, in the, your opening statement that uh, they were executed for stealing the secret of the atomic bomb, but they were actually charged with conspiracy to commit espionage. And, and that's the difference between a vague charge, the indictment didn't even mention the words atomic bomb, and a conspiracy charge, which the government only needs to show that two or more people got together and planned to do something and took one act in furtherance of their plan, and the public perception that they were convicted of stealing the secret of the atomic bomb, what the prosecution called the most important scientific known, secrets known to mankind. You know, they were convicted either in the public mind of espionage or treason, when in fact none of that was true. And most people to this day find it hard to believe that they were only convicted of conspiracy. I and, did. I, that jumped yeah. out of the page at me. I, I, I was shocked at that. So that's, the, that's the, the, the reality that they had to face, this, this misperception. And it's, part of it was uh, today the government, and, and we've gone through 50, more than 50 years, decades of the government hauling out what they call previously secret evidence, and this, and every sort of few years we go through a new round. This new evidence proves the Rosenbergs are guilty, and then, you know, as people look deeper into the evidence, they discover it's not as clear cut as that. And and the latest example actually happened now more than ten years ago. Venona, uh, right? Yeah, the Venona transcriptions, which I talk about at length in yes. the book. Uh, these were uh, what's interesting about them is that they were. Soviet electronic transmissions transmitted in code that the National Security Agency claimed in the late 1940s that they were able to decode them. The cables were supposedly transmitted during the early, during World War II. And they used these decoded information to capture my parents. Well, and to prove that my parents were guilty of atomic espionage. But why your parents? They were these lower middle class people on the Lower East Side of New York. What was remarkable to, the, to them about well, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg? There was nothing remarkable at all, except that they were members of the Communist Party. But and so were many other people. Yes, why there them? were a million of them. And the only other remarkable thing, or the only other connection, was that my mother's younger brother, David Greenglass, who was an army sergeant with a high school education, no scientist of any sort, but was working as a machinist fabricating parts on the atomic bomb when he was drafted in, in Los Alamos, New Mexico. So there was this connection between communism and the atomic bomb. And that's one of the things that Venona brings out, that uh, the person who they say is my father, who's never mentioned by name, is described as someone who's ignorant of the atomic bomb project. David Greenglass is described as someone who might have snooped around and, and you know, 
listed who, what scientists he saw, but he didn't have any great technical knowledge. And the person they say is my mother, who's never given a code name at all, which they, in, which they say indicates she was never a spy, uh, you know, is all, even less involved. And so when you put all those things together, Venona, which is supposedly proof positive of my parents' guilt, turns out to be evidence of some sort of guilt of something on my father's part, uh, but not atomic espionage, and actually evidence of my mother's innocence. It's said that your parents were convicted largely on the testimony of your uncle David Greenglass and his wife. And in fact, what really got your mother in trouble was that Mrs. Greenglass said that Ethel typed up all the notes at the meetings. Mm-hmm. And, that's, and then, that then, was really used to club her over the head. That was the evidence presented against my mother, which when you think about it, it means that the government of the United States executed someone for typing. For typing, right. Uh, but even David Greenglass, it took until 2001 before he admitted on the CBS uh, TV show 60 Minutes 2 that uh, he lied when he said that he remembered that. Um, and the FBI files are filled with documents that essentially say, Ethel Rosenberg, we don't have any evidence, uh, but we've got to build a case against her. And then Ruth Greenglass makes the statement about the typing shortly before the trial. And then David Greenglass now says 50 years later, I lied when I said I remembered that. I, the prosecutors pressured me into doing it in order to save my wife. So it's clear that the government of the United States knew that Ethel Rosenberg was not guilty of atomic espionage and executed her anyway. And that's what Venona really shows, as opposed to my parents' guilt. But unfortunately, it gets repeated over and over again. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's hard to break through that perception. Uh, but all of this, uh, of course, teaches us, I mean, for today, it's a an very important lesson for today because in, in post 9/11 America, we're constantly hearing that we have to, you know, uh, the Constitution and the Bill of Rights have to take a backseat to national security, or our way of life is destroyed. And that's exactly what was said in my parents' case. But what you find is is the Constitution and the Bill of Rights are even more important in times of stress and crisis, because that's when they're most likely to be abused, and that's when people are most likely to be caught up in uh, frame-ups and the like, and that more often than not, this national security excuse is used to cover up government misdeeds rather than to actually protect ourselves. And I think we have found that with the Bush administration occurring over and over and over again since September 11th. Uh, That's, you know, my parents' case is not only of historical importance, it's of current importance because of that. Your niece, Ivy, has made a film called Heir to an Execution. She, of course, will be the granddaughter of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, although she never knew them. And there's a very heartrending, there's several very heartrending scenes in that film, but she goes to the cemetery to find their graves. And the people who run the cemetery won't tell her where the graves are, and they have to know, but mm-hmm. they but they just will not tell her how to find her grandparents' graves. What's that about? Well, I think that the people in the cemetery are you know, 
This is 50 years later. I'm not quite sure where this comes from, but it's some desire to avoid notoriety. It's some desire to fear that if Jews, left over from the McCarthy period, fear that if Jews are associated with communists, it's somehow going to be a bad reflection on Jews. It's going to build anti-Semitism, because it is a a Jewish cemetery. Cemetery, Um, uh, And... And beyond that, that's all I can think of. Um, uh, it, it just it, it makes so little sense. Uh, but uh, there you have it. Do you remember the sound of your parents' voices? You know, not really. Okay. Not really. Well, I cannot. Um, were there touched? Or, or? Yeah. Well, I just remember them being very warm. I re- certainly remember. I remember my mother being. My mother was small. Yeah. Uh, my mother was like about 5'1", uh, and I remember her appearing so short. And she uh, was an opera singer. She, yeah, she Trent. had a terrific voice, uh, yeah. singing voice, but I can't say that, that I really remember right. it. Right, right. Uh, talk a bit about one question about the Rosenberg Fund for Children. I'm being devil's advocate here, but say that I'm arrested because I uh, support uh, the ban on abortions or I support the Iraq war, and I, I'm really suffering in prison I'm a righty. Uh, mm-hmm. Now, it's unlikely that I would probably find your fund for my children, but if I did, would you consider that application? Well, that's where we go back to the four guiding principles. The board of directors make – we have a board of directors who make all decisions, and they apply these principles. Uh, in order to be eligible for support, you have to uh, – fall under one of these guiding principles. All people have equal worth. People are more important than profits. Society must function within ecologically sustainable limits and world peace is a necessity. Uh, I think supporting, you know, I think supporting war or uh, denying a woman a right to choose would, you know, violate several of those guidelines. And so the person would be not eligible for support. But at the same time, we apply those guidelines as broadly as possible. So I think they uh, they go from middle of the political spectrum out to the left. Uh, and but not to the far right. Not That's... to the right on right. the other side. I mean, you know, and if somebody on the other side of the spectrum wants to start a fund that, you know, addresses those those needs, well, that's, they certainly have the right to do so. Robert Miropol's book is called An Execution in the Family, One Son's Journey. It's from St. Martin's Press. It is a very, very compelling and fascinating read. You have an earlier book with your brother called We Are Your Sons, which is basically when you both surfaced. Is that right? That's correct. That was Houghton Mifflin and then double day, a Doubleday paperback. That's been out of print for a very long time, though you can still you find, can find it, it. Um, uh, whether you go online. Though, you know, I always recommend as, as, as a supporter of independent bookstores that you – and independent bookstores and used bookstores often uh, can find these things for you. Uh, even my recent book uh, is – you know, you can find it online. You can order it from somewhere like Amazon. But I recommend that you actually go to a local bookstore and get they can find it they can order it for you either new or used um there are i don't think there are any hardback uh editions available new hardback editions available except at uh the rosenberg fund uh 
where we we've bought up all the final copies and and they all all the money goes to the fund and I actually sell signed hardbacks. Uh, oh. You can find this out from our website uh, uh, for ten dollars a piece, uh, which is very cheap. Um, because we're not trying to make money on it so much as we're trying to get the word out, uh, and and that's you know of because in some ways the book is really tells the story of the fund, so it's harder to find. We are your sons, uh, but in both cases, if if you really want copies, you can find them. And not forgetting libraries too, because they are yes, they certainly right. throughout libraries. Again, the website for the Rosenberg Fund for Children is www.rfc.org. My thanks to Robert Mirapol for his time and his story. You're welcome.